Hello, everybody, and welcome to the HTML All Things Podcast, episode number 34, Advanced Topics with Little Experience. I'm your host, Matt Lawrence, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Mike Coran. What have you been up to this week, Mike? Well, uh, hey, Matt. Uh, so this week, we've finally re- reached that like impromptu deadline that we had with uh, one of our largest clients, uh, Content Link. And so now it's kind of in the stage of a little bit of refactoring of that that project. Uh, still a lot of work to be done, like a whole crap ton of work to be done, to be honest. Still trying to get all the features worked out, uh, a lot of bug testing, a lot of refactoring. But I'm trying to, like after that big rush, obviously there was a lot of code that had to be written in a very short amount of time. And because of that, there's a lot of obviously shortcuts that we had to do and techniques that we that we use that we shouldn't have. So now I'm going back and I've kind of, made a you know a whole week period to refactor and restructure the code so that it's a little bit more extendable uh, and maintainable in the future. So that that's kind of the topic of this week is pretty much bug fixing, refactoring, uh, and then priority uh, shuffling. That's that's what I've been trying to do. I've also been working a little bit on my desktop setup. Uh, I think I mentioned before that I just I have three monitors now, one in vertical. Um, and I've just been kind of laying on my desktop. I actually got a new MacBook or a new old MacBook, I guess, because the new MacBooks are ridiculously expensive. Uh, so I got a 2013 MacBook Pro, which I've been trying to set up to be my uh, full-on um, like portable editing, portable coding machine. Uh, so that's going pretty interestingly. Going to coffee shops, trying to code with a larger screen is nice rather than my other 13-inch MacBook and 13-inch uh, Windows 10 laptop. Um, so yeah, just lot, lots of little things. Finally have you know some structure to my day and not just sit on my ass for 12 hours try to, trying to meet a deadline, which is nice. Uh, what about you, Matt? Uh, so I'm also kind of winding down some stuff too. Um, so we recently had uh, an interesting experience with Vue.js, which is what this episode is kind of sparked by. And I'll get into that in the segment, of course, in depth. But um, so doing that. And then uh, I'm also I've also finished a couple of projects for some people, um, cleared out a little bit of a backlog. Uh, we had some customers that needed uh, needed me on site to uh, to just fix up a couple of things. So we got that done and that, that's been pending uh, pending since the new year, actually, due to some scheduling conflicts. So that that's done now. Everything's good to go in that regard. And basically we're, Mike and I just kind of had a little small meeting and, you know, things are looking up for us, which is really good. And we're like thinking about, you know, doing some scheduling to hopefully get some more content on, on here and on everything else like that and doing some internal changes and that type of thing. So it's kind of an exciting active time, uh, which is really great. And it should be wholly, hopefully really great for you guys if we're able to get more, uh, more and better content out to you guys. Um, and hopefully this episode really outlines one of the issues that we constantly have with the industry. So I'm just going to kind of go through the segments that we have coming up here. And then, um, of course, we will dive right in. So the first segment is quite long-winded, um, and this one's going to be covered by me. This is that whole this is that whole situation that we found ourselves in this week. It's called uh, the newcomer effect. Uh, and then segment number two is going to be strategies. That's going to be covered by Mike, and he's going to talk about how to remedy some of those issues that I bring up in that first segment. And then segment number, or rather not segment number three, but our recurring segment, web news, is going to be thin client computing. So this one, this one should be really interesting because I know very little, if anything, about it. 
So Mike's going to kind of introduce me to it. And then as a, I'll kind of give you my first impressions and we'll kind of have a conversation as somebody who knows what news they're talking about and someone who does not. So let's just dive right in here. Should be a packed episode. Um, so segment number one, the newcomer effect. So this segment is going to focus on our experience configuring a Vue.js service worker. So I went in with no previous hands-on experience. I'm a complete newcomer to service workers and an amateur at Vue.js because we just started maybe a couple months ago and it, I don't, it's not my daily driver. I don't use it every day. So therefore this process is, you know, no doubt clunky. Uh, and, but you'll hear it exactly as it happened. So if you think like, oh, that's an inefficient way to do it, it's because I, because, because we're amateurs and we're new to it. Um, and one other thing, just kind of a disclaimer here. I just want to be clear before I dive in here that we're using this, the following scenario that I'm about to outline, uh, because it was recent, we're not pointing the finger at any of the plugins, apps, or resources that we mentioned below. The services we're discussing are in, or the uh, issues we're, dis we're discussing are, uh, industry wide and are not, uh, you know, we're not pointing the finger at a specific service platform or individual or anything like that. We're just outlining a specific situation. Um, so basically, recently we went to work with service workers on a Vue.js app. And if you've been with us for a little while, you know you know what app it is. The No BS News for Reddit app, which was a part of our coding challenge that we did a little while back. And as a part of the coding challenge, we already had a basic service worker set up that allowed the local assets to load when the app was offline. So basically cache those local assets and you were able to continue using, I don't know, you can't really do much with it, but you could continue like having those assets and it would load like an app. Basically, this functionality was made using a PWA plugin for Vue.js. And... We left this plugin mostly, if not completely, in its default configuration. And like I've already said, this default configuration registers a service worker and then generates a service worker file whose cache, who caches, um, or which caches rather, those offline assets. So I think it was like our nav bar uh, and our little top bar thing, and that's really it. So the app wasn't really useful, but you could boot it offline if you wanted to. Um, and then so basically Mike did this part. Mike got the project to this point during the coding challenge. And then I took over more recently because we needed to do a little bit of a research into service workers. So this is kind of where things fell apart for me. And I'm going to, again, I'm going to go through all this. It's going to sound like I'm complaining, but then I'm going to kind of go over, over everything and hopefully smooth everything over to uh, get our point across. So I had done a couple of days on reading basic service worker configurations and functionality and then I finally decided to dive into our particular project. So the first thing I did was look around the file structure um, and I find a file named registerserviceworker.js. So this file contained an import line regarding register-service-worker which is the term that fueled my initial Google searches as well as the registration um, and basic responses that you'd expect such as successfully registered, detecting offline, etc. So all that was in that file. There was that import line, like I said, and then there was a little bit of functionality determining whether a service worker was registered, registered, whether you were offline, etc., etc. So searching register-service-worker led me to the page that, I, uh, that I'm going to link in the show notes, which had some very brief documentation and a code example that looked like our register-service-worker.js file. So I'm thinking, okay, so far so good. Everything looks good. Everything's, you know, according to the documentation and we're good from there. However, from there, I ran into, I ran some tests on Chrome. So like, I just like to see it working in the real world. So I went and I, you know, in, inside of the inspect, uh, inside of the uh, inspect element or I forget what it's always called, but it's like the dev, the dev tools in Chrome. 
you can go in there and you can go to the application tab and kind of see, oh, you know, your your service worker's installing, you know, it's checking the offline mode, et cetera, et cetera. I just kind of want, like to get my bearings with the actual thing. And then at that point, I went, I wanted to start adding some of my my own code uh, to the service worker from my reading. So I did that reading. I was like, okay, let's start adding some functionality. And I knew from those readings that the service worker was definitely a separate file and was and from the register service worker.js file that I already mentioned, I could see that it was referring to a file called service-worker.js. So I'm thinking, okay, this is really great. So I start searching the directory for said file and it I couldn't find it anywhere. So then I went back to the browser again, you know, running that test environment, and I start taking a look at the sources tab to find out which which like uh, which file was running the service worker. And it showed that it was definitely that service-worker.js file, which indicated that the file was being created dynamically as a part of the build process. So this is where things started like kind of really going down like a rabbit hole. And it led it led me down this rabbit hole for several hours and a couple of days here and there because I was working in between doing other stuff for clients. So what we were trying to do, what the goal was, is I was trying to essentially inject or take over the service worker code, um, the default stuff, and actually put in my own. And overall, we eventually did find a solution for for the code injection. However, it was not the original register-service-worker documentation, nor was it discussed a lot on Stack Overflow. And we did we did find one uh, Stack Overflow thread that did help, which led us to a useful blog and a couple of interesting links. And I also found a separate page on uh, npmjs.com. Um, Somewhere along the lines, like I'm not really sure even where I had this. I had a whole collection of bookmarks that I did for these show notes, and I just kind of had it in there. So I can't remember where exactly I found this particular link, but it had the missing code that we were looking for. So there was a couple of different resources that I found uh, that helped us kind of fill in that blank of how do you inject our code. So basically, um, at the end of the day, just to not get too... Uh, too technical with it because this this is not a specifically service worker episode. Basically, we needed to add, um, add some injection configuration into view.config.js file, and then from there we could make our own service worker script essentially. So now I know that's long-winded, but it points out some very important, um, very important problems or concerns that I kind of found in the industry. So what I call the newcomer effect is alive and well. So if you've Follow me on Medium for a while. I wrote an article on there a long time ago uh, entitled The Newcomer Effect, something something along those lines. And it basically means that any documents, signs, directions that are available for any given experience rarely take into account the needs of those that are complete beginners, which inadvertently increases the entry budget for newbies. So this is kind of one of those unfortunate things. I think actually in the article, it's been a really long time since I wrote it, but in the article, I actually didn't even talk about programming too much. I actually mentioned walking into a hospital and being like, oh, where's this particular doctor? You know, hospitals are large buildings. There's signs everywhere. You don't know what department you're going to. You don't know, you know, you have a room number maybe, but you don't know where you're going. So those signs and everything are just all over the place. So the newcomer effect is, is, present in real life as it is in the pro in the programming world. Um, I'm not really sure how documentation documentation writers do it. Maybe it's because they've been working on their projects for so long, but they often, at least in my opinion, miss or completely miss major steps in the documentation. It's got to be mentioned that like just in general, I think we desperately need in terms of a, an a overarching thing in the industry, we need better documentation for beginners. And furthermore, we need to start linking together helpful guides. So at the end of the day here, 
our register service worker file, right, was a part of one tool that we were using. And then there was also like a PWA installation that was done as well, uh, CLI plugin PWA. And basically what was happening is the one documentation was just solely talking about the registration process. But obviously one of the major things that people would want to do is replace the default service worker that you that the the thing actually generates and yet that there was no documentation that pointed to the other file so both of these pages and i'm going to link all this in the description so you can kind of or in the show notes so you can kind of see what i'm talking about but both of these uh both of these pages were on um npmjs.com and they don't link to each other at all but they're essentially depending on your scenario essentially to me part one and part two so I kind of think that we really need to link this stuff together because you're just delaying, you know, delaying the process of people going through. And I'm not alone in this. That Stack Overflow article that I mentioned, which will also be linked, was also it was it was a person in essentially the same scenario. They didn't understand how to how to you know inject. They were having trouble connecting everything. You know, there was no full picture of what was going on essentially, and that's really frustrating, especially when you know I'm new to service workers and I'm just trying to get this service worker to set up let alone I have to actually program the service worker. And so it's just a real, it's just a real pain there. So uh, in this particular case, with this particular Vue.js setup, maybe it's because folks don't write their own service worker and they'd rather just, they just want that default service worker where it caches the local assets and that's it. But it really, really, really should be mentioned that, you know, if you want to write your own service worker, maybe you should check out, you know, the documentation at link X, you know, whatever. That is something that I really think should have been in there. Um, and this goes for everything else too. There's a lot of holes in documentation that's often filled by other, um, by other concepts or other ideas or other plugins, apps, whatever. And oftentimes it's not linked to, and that's really strange because your documentation should really guide a user through common scenarios, at least in my opinion. Also, um, a little bit of a community note, I suppose. Toxicity and useless comments are just alive and well. So on various forum posts, comments, um, and of course, you know, in notoriously Stack Overflow posts, there's typically an abundance of comments that dismiss questions due to the, you know, the user not being experienced enough, or oh, you know, this this question's too vague, or you know, just just comments like that, or similar reasons, or maybe questions are marked as duplicates when, really, at least in my opinion. You know, that was a unique enough question to be asked because if you go and search uh, search it up in Stack Overflow, you just find a whole bunch of common or uh, similar questions that are marked as duplicate. And then the one question that they're all saying is like a, the one question that isn't a duplicate ends up not answering the question fully. So it's just one of those things where it's like, I'm kind of think that even if there is a bit of a crossover, a bit of a duplication thing there, I kind of think they should be a little more lenient in the duplication department maybe something like that, especially when we're talking about complete beginners, because you don't know what questions to ask if you're brand new to it. And this is kind of one of those things where you're brought into an environment where we're new at, we're new to Vue.js, you know, but we're not new to web, like web development. And so we can read a whole bunch of the documentation, but when stuff is all over the place, you know, it's such a, it's such a roadblock to just have that in your way where you just don't, you just don't, you don't have the whole picture there. You can't see everything. And that's really irritating. And it, it's, uh, it's a really, it's a really strange thing to have. I think at this stage, I really think that we should be writing uh, guides that at least 
have like a, a my first app like equivalent a lot of places do have a my first app and a my first app is really meant to you know let's take somebody through making uh, an android app let's say that's that's my first app oh look you put text on here you put a picture in whatever the my first app example is i kind of feel like for these little plugins and stuff like that on github i kind of think that they should have that i think that'd be like super super helpful i know it's more work but just just something there and I, I just want to I just want to reiterate here that I'm simply mentioning some of the roadblocks that we face when we're newbies on a given topic. And I'm sure a bunch I'm sure a bunch of these affect other people as well. And I'm not pointing the finger at this particular PWA plugin. Uh, I'm not pointing the finger at Stack Overflow, npmjs.com, or any other website. I'm simply using this particular recent scenario to point out common problems that could be ironed out for those of us that are inexperienced. And these problems can be found across you know, pretty much any programming language and even outside um, of the programming world in some cases, like I mentioned that, like getting lost in a hospital situation. So in conclusion, once we got the server service worker running, uh, we were off to the races. We ended up being able to cache all of our Google fonts thanks to a helpful guide, and we are well on our way uh, to getting more offline functionality added into the app. Uh, once we had everything put together, the PWA plugin works great, no complaints there, um, but I do still stand by my position that finding instructions on how to set something up in Vue or any other framework, library, or whatever the heck it is you're using shouldn't be the challenging part. In my opinion, the challenging part should be in, in our particular case, the challenging part here should be us trying to get all the offline functionality to work on the service worker itself, actually programming the service worker itself, not trying to figure out how a service worker is set up in this particular configuration. Because at the end of the day, you know, essentially you're registering it. There's a little bit more maintenance there, but the service worker file itself, again, in my opinion, should actually be the more difficult part. And it's frustrating when you're essentially sifting through like, how do I set this up in this particular environment? I haven't even started making stuff actually work in the real world, or in our case, go offline. So that's just that's just my two cents, and I'm sure that a bunch of you guys out there who are new to any topic, or in the case in this one, you know, we're not new to web development, but we're new to Vue.js, and then we're using the, an advanced topic, which is service workers. So now, you know, you're using an advanced topic with a little experience, just to try to bring the title together of the episode together with that. So uh, I know I've been talking for a while, so I think I'm going to hand it off to Mike for comment or to move on to the second segment in the show. Yeah, Matt. Uh, so thanks for going through that. And I mean, part part of your struggle and part of what you were doing is I think something a lot of people can relate to. Uh, so I think it's a good example to bring up and just like even going into it in detail like you did was really good because I think someone out there listening knows that like they've gone through this and they've been kind of doubting themselves maybe as a developer um, and they shouldn't because this is just part of the process. It's part of the part of the way of learning. So sometimes you won't know how to do something. Sometimes it'll look extremely complicated to you and you'll go through these like situations where you're just constantly going down a rabbit hole trying to find different solutions and stuff like that and you think that some other more experienced developer could solve it quicker uh well sure it's it's possible that they could but it's possible that they would go down a very similar or an even longer path than you so it's important to kind of think about how uh, learn from how you got to the end uh and don't dwell too much on the fact that it took you a long time to get there or you went through certain steps that you shouldn't have and it was a waste of time that's not part of it the part the part that you should be focusing on is the fact that you got to the end you completed the task uh and you learned a lot from it so just keep that in mind and another thing is that part of the 
problem that Matt had with this task was actually on my side because I didn't give him all the information that I should have uh, from the very beginning. But I think that that's also a key thing here is that when you go off and you do your own task in the future, uh, you might not have all the information and that's this that will complicate the task for you. So in this case, I should have told Matt uh, how the register service worker plugin was created. It was created through the Vue CLI plugin uh, and that might have led him to a better and, and quicker understanding of the whole situation. So that's definitely my bad on that one. But I think either way, it's, it's good for the, the listener to to go to listen to you go through that whole situation. Um, but w with that being said, uh, I want to move on to the next segment, which kind of deals with this kind of situation, but in a more strategy type way. So how I'm going to be talking about how I kind of handle these complicated situations, these advanced topics uh, with little to no experience and in going into it. I'm going to talk about how I handle issues that arise that might be also advanced and that might be kind of overwhelming. It's going to be focused on those things that when you sit down, you look at it and you're like, what is going on here? Like, what? Well, how am I supposed to even start tackling something like this, something of this kind of scale? Um, so again, these issues can range from concepts that you haven't heard of, like a, a binary tree search or a design pattern that you maybe don't know about, um, an advanced algorithm that you haven't heard of, or it can be just a simple library or framework that you want to learn in the future. Any of these concepts could be large to you, could be small to you, depending on which stage of a developer you are. But essentially anything out there is something that could be an advanced topic to anyone. Um, but for Sometimes when taking on a task, it might seem that there's just too many unknowns for you and you're delving into a sea of advanced topics. So I'm going to go through and through a couple of ways I go about learning and implementing advanced topics and issues and solving the issues that arise with them. Um, so first thing I do, and this pretty much goes across board with any topic, sometimes even not advanced topics, just to get a starting point, uh, is I break everything down into smaller chunks. So if I'm talking about, uh, let's use Vue.js as an example, because that's been kind of a theme in our latest episodes. Uh, if I were to go about learning Vue.js from scratch, and I, obviously I know some base stuff about JavaScript and stuff like that. So the first thing I would, I would do is break it down into manageable topics and start from those topics. So the first topic would be something like set up a dev development environment for Vue.js, uh, create a first hello world application. So get something to display on, on screen with the Vue.js framework. The third thing would be test reactivity. So how does reactivity work in Vue.js? Maybe if you're familiar with React, how does a reactivity work in Vue.js compared to React? So set up that kind of task for yourself. Then figure out how navigation works, figure out how state sharing works, learn about the components aspect of Vue.js. So I would break it up into a small and manageable tasks as I could so that I'm not looking at the sea of unknown. I'm looking at more of a structure and a building of unknown. So top to bottom where you can kind of go and learn about one thing and that'll maybe help you out with the next thing that you're going about. So take those big tasks, get smaller tasks out of it. Uh, and to do that, to like, so by breaking apart a complicated topic into smaller manageable attacks, it takes away that initial feeling of being lost and allows you to focus on those small and easy digestible topics. Um, so if the topic is something that's hard to break down, so you're not sure where to start even to break it down, the one thing I do is I usually go to the documentation of that topic. Uh, and they usually start from something like getting started, uh, which is usually setting up the development environment, installing that either library or framework. In this case, it's Vue.js. So getting started with Vue.js, it'll be uh, how to, you know, start get your developer get your development environment set up and it'll go down and be like and it'll show you a list of things 
that uh, the documentation has. And usually from top to bottom, it goes from varying complexity. So top would be the easier one, bottom would be it'll get harder and harder and harder. So it's a good way to start breaking down what you want those tasks to be. Take a look at the documentation. Obviously, if it's poor documentation, like Matt was mentioning, you had a problem with the documentation, it becomes a little bit harder and you might have to delve even deeper into a, like, you know, a stack overflow kind of thing. Like just go, just, you know, see the issues that arise, see what people are talking about on that topic. Um, you might have to get farther, further and further into it with different forums and stuff like that. But essentially, if you have good documentation, that's a great place to start. Uh, once the topic has been broken down to learn more about each section, I would actually start coding almost right away. So if you're setting up that development environment, you're, you're reading about how to set up the development environment, set that development environment right up, uh, pretty much instantly. So, and I, I like to do that with every topic too. So I like to quickly glance over, maybe read a section of, of, uh, of the topic. Um, and then I like to just jump in and start trying to code it up. Uh, I'm, I'm a big like I'm, I'm a big in use learner, so I need to do it to learn it. Um, so that's kind of the, the the direction I go. I know some people are much more uh, book learning, so they they do a lot more reading before even starting. But like if if I was giving out suggestions uh, to a new developer, try it out at least. Uh, try out just like you know coding as fast as possible, like getting into the coding aspect of your, learning your topic as fast as possible to get to get a better concept grasp on the concepts. So the more I'm actually applying what I'm learning, the faster I'll pick up the concepts and find the downfalls and issues as well, which is a big part of it. And speaking of the issues in, in advanced topics, there can also be hard to debug issues. And we've had an episode on troubleshooting, so I won't go too far into uh, how to troubleshoot and different, different process for troubleshooting, but essentially your first key goal in a troubleshooting advanced topic scenario is to be able to reproduce the issue. So anytime you can consistently reproduce a, a, an issue, it's a lot easier to then understand where it's coming from and then start using uh, Chrome Dev Tools and the de development tools available to you to be able to step into the issue using breakpoints. And then inside of those breakpoints, you can kind of monitor state. So what's going on with all the variables? Which variable is the one that's failing? Which variable should be this, but isn't this? So it's a great, it's a really good tool. You might as you might might as well use it while you have it. Um, use use your breakpoints. Use your dev tools. Make sure again. Uh, number one big thing about being able to solve an issue is being able to reproduce it consistently. I've had situations where issues have been extremely difficult to reproduce, and those have been definitely the hardest ones to fix. Uh, usually, and I would say 90, 95% of the time, if I can reproduce an issue, I can fix it fairly quickly. Uh, that's the, those are kind of my little little tips for troubleshooting. But if you if you want to learn more, there is an episode on that uh, podcast episode on that that we'll link in the show notes. So if you run into a roadblock and you don't see a solution at all, step away from that issue. That's another kind of um, technique that I use to go through a really difficult issue. So I always like if I'm sitting there and I'm bashing my head against the keyboard because I can't solve something, that usually means that I'm just too far into it. I'm looking at it from a wrong angle. So what, what happens is I'll get up. I'll go do something mundane, like, I don't know, take out the trash, do something around the house. And while I'm doing that, I'm usually thinking about the problem, but I'll start thinking about it in a different angle. So what, like, again, 95% of the time, what will happen in that situation is as I'm doing something different and using my mind in a different way, I'll actually approach the topic at a different angle and I'll find another stab at a solution. So sometimes it won't be a solution, but I'll be like, oh, did I look at it from this angle? 
Uh, so, and then I'll go back and I'll try that angle out again. Sometimes it can be a, a multi-step process where I'm bashing my head against the keyboard multiple times, getting up multiple times, but eventually if you kind of work through it logically and you go, go at it without being angry, you can usually get a normal, like a, a, a good approach at a solution. Um, so here's something that recently happened to me along those lines. So something that like made me, you know, bash my head against a, a keyboard and sometimes, and this kind of references the fact that advanced issues could be on really seemingly very simple topics. Uh, so what I had to do was you get a comparison slider to work in a Vue.js application. What a comparison slider is, is it's one of those left side, right side uh, pictures. And then you have a little slider in the, in between, like a little, uh, you know, you, t you, you either hold it with your mouse and you go left and right and it compares the two images. Um, it hides the one image when you go left and it hides the other image when you go right. So very simple kind of construction. Uh, it, it, very common to use on a website when you're comparing two different images, two different products. I've used it many, many times before in a non-Vue.js kind of scenario, but this time I was just like, okay, well, it's comparison slider. Let's go look for a comparison slider library that I can easily plug in so I don't have to create my own, save some time, uh, especially for my for my uh, for my um, employer. So um, I go out, look, look for libraries. There's plenty of libraries. I mean, I, I saw, I think I saw four or five. So I didn't, I didn't really balk at the issue. So I was like, okay, this is a simple solution. Well, little did I know that none of those libraries, and I did try all of them, uh, would actually work the way I wanted them to in my application. So they would just not work. Like one of them would be, would, would have the aspect ratio all screwed up. And one of them would just straight up not load at all. The other one would just not work on touch. Uh, so there was many varying issues of different magnitudes. Um, so I was, that was a point of, you know, bashing my head against the keyboard. So what, what do I do? So I decided to approach it as an advanced topic, even though it's a simple one, I decided to go back and be like, okay, this is obviously more advanced than I thought it was going to be. So what should I do? Um, and I decided to break down the problem. So I broke it down into find the best library to work in, in at least a basic way to my liking. So maybe not the exact way that I want it, that I wanted it to, but let's get it working in some sort of way in Vue.js. And I had to pick a best library. If it works in that way, that was, this was my list. If it works in that way, why isn't it working in my particular scenario? So can I reproduce that issue, reproduce the issue? Tr then take the library code. So since usually libraries for Vue.js are mostly MIT licensed, I was able to, uh, you know, clone that code, take the actual, take the view, the Vue.js component code and step through it in my application. So I was able to, again, use the Chrome dev tools, put on some breakpoints and see what was happening on each and every point when I was trying to load that actual slider. And what I found was there was a point when it was um, not updating some min, some width dimensions. Uh, it, it was using some sort of third party library to detect on, uh, you know, re resizing of the window, which wasn't working correctly. And because of that, it wasn't actually ever updating the width. So as soon as I, you know, ripped out that third party library, put it, ran my own width dimensions calculations, uh, it started working no problem. So again, uh, it really helped me because I broke down that problem and I was able to kind of go at it calmly. And yes, I had to use a couple times. I had to use the technique of getting up out of my desk, going, doing something, taking a walk around the house and taking it, taking a stab at it from a different angle. And again, this is a very, like a seemingly a very simple issue. And 
I got stuck on it. And I'm sure most people can relate to that kind of thing. And most people have their own way of solving it. And I'd, again, I'd, I'd, I would actually like to hear any uh, any other suggestions out there on how other people do, uh, approach these kind of situations. But that's kind of how, that's kind of my strategy for approaching it. it it's worked so far. Um, there's been very few times where I've had issues like fully, you know, dead block issues where I had to completely pivot to a different solution. Obviously it happens here and there, but uh, for the most part, I've been able to power through my issue, power through any issue that arises, find, uh, get the knowledge for any uh, library that I need to know or any framework, just, just using this kind of method. Um, so I think, uh, I think that that's it for my kind of strategy. Uh, I'm going to pass it off to Matt if he has any comments or questions on it or uh I'll, i can move on to web news yeah so i have a, a kind of a question i guess so i guess it's more particularly about the point about the plugin uh that you were trying to use that like wasn't quite functioning and you tried a bunch of them how much do you think in terms of like the the preparation stage i guess uh would you say that a person should invest in looking at the particular plugins because obviously they'll be generally engineering let's say an entire project with a whole bunch of moving parts and let's say like you know two out of the four moving parts they're just going to look it up and be like oh there's plugins for that or there's a framework for that or whatever so i'm good how much time do you think they should spend if any on actually looking in depth into that particular plugin or plugins so absolutely so that's a good question um and I, I did I did this initially too. So I looked at I like this was way before I even started coding this comparison slider. I looked at the whole project, looked at which features that we, we would need, and I saw that we would need a comparison slider. Checked if there was comparison slider plugins, and kind of rolled with the fact that there were and moved on. So uh, I could have gone in and done a little bit more research, uh, figure and and probably maybe figured out that some of these plugins wouldn't work. But there's no way I could have known that in this particular instance, it wouldn't work for this per particular reason. So the reason that it didn't work on my end was because I was not showing the plugin right away. I was high, It was not in a div that was being shown on load. It was been a div that was being shown later. So even if I were to have gone and tested that plugin just to see if it worked, I would have saw that it worked and moved on and I wouldn't have known about this issue. So there's not much you can do. So my suggestion is really do a top level, look at it, do a top level. You can, you can go through a couple of plugins and make sure that they have the functionality that you need. Uh, but to essentially go in and, you know, test every single one of them, I think is a waste of time. If an issue arises, I think that's the thing we, we developers get paid to do is fix issues and uh, power through issues. So we kind of have to take it at that, take it at what it is and fix it as, as it arises with any, any project that you do, you're going to run into something like this, a compatibility issue, because usually what you're doing is something different than what was intended with the project. Like the exact hundred percent intent is what I'm saying. Um, so there's going to be little things that aren't going to do exactly what you want it to do. So you're going to have to roll up the punches anyway. I don't think there's a point in investing an, an exorbitant amount of time to uh, research every single little plugin that you intend to use in your application. I would say roll with it, use the plugin. If it doesn't work, try to find a different plugin. If that doesn't work, try to figure out your own solution. Okay, cool. Yeah, because I was I was going to say like there's only there's only kind of like so much prep you can do, and there comes a point in which like if you're doing that much prep, then you're essentially just programming that part of the app anyway. So just you know obviously budget extra time for stuff. Like be conservative with your with your time estimates 
you know, make sure that you don't say, oh, you know, make sure it's not going to take you six hours and you only budget six hours, like budget 12 or like whatever. Right. And then yeah, if, if, you d if you end up charging the customer less, they're going to be happy. And also that's less hours of you doing prep work as well as yeah. you kind of look at it that way too. So. Yeah, there's no way you can get 100% accurate with your quotes. Uh, that's some, something that everyone, I think, n everyone knows. Uh, so you always want to budget yourself a little bit of extra time on each feature, and uh, you can be a you can be a nice guy. And at the end of it, if if everything goes as smoothly as you really thought it was, you would you could you know refund the customer a little bit, and they would only be happy, and p potentially refer you to further clients because you budget you. You charge them a little bit less than you said you would charge them, which is a huge thing. Um, I think as an anecdotal story to that, uh, we had a painting crew come into our house and do some painting a couple years ago. And, you know, they budgeted a certain amount of money. And at the end of their project, they left us $500 because they didn't use that time in that budget. Uh, which was huge. Like that was, you know, wow, like they didn't have to do that. We wouldn't have known. But they did it anyway, and from then on, we kind of recommend them to anyone else that's doing painting. So that's kind of the anecdote that I would say is sometimes you should be kind of, you know, really nice to your customers, and that could pay off for you in the future. Now, obviously, don't go overboard and nickel and dime every single cent that you have. Uh, but if, if you, you know, if you budgeted 60 hours and it only took 30, you could be a nice guy and give back a few, some time and some money. Um so yeah, that, that's kind of my my two cents on that as well. I I agree with you there, Matt, for sure. Um, I think I think with that though, let's move on to our web news this week. Uh, so web news this week is on thin client computing. So with the announcement of Google's new streaming service Stadia, uh, I think that's what it's called, Stadia. It seems like a good time to have a quick look at the current state and potential future of a thin client. Think client computing. So what, what think client computing is referring to is this, it means it's a small computer, small low power computer that is essentially used as a remote desktop or remote connect to an offsite powerful uh, data center or powerful computer that provides much greater performance than the actual than you can actually get with something that small and portable. Um, so in reference to Google's new game streaming service, a person can can uh, by, by the end of 2019, I think they said, will be able to play AAA games using any device that can run the internet and have a Chrome browser on it. Um, and this has been around for a little while now. I think GeForce Now has a similar service where you can where you can use any sort of browser, like you don't have to use your computer's actual hardware, you're using the internet to run the game. But the difference here is Google is actually doing it with a very a huge infrastructure at play. Like they compared to Nvidia, which is a graphics card company, uh, Google has many, many more, more servers and many more data centers where they can put their nodes and their pa powerful machines. So you can decrease the amount of latency. You can de you can increase your bandwidth to the actual uh, server and, and be able to get a much better performance out of it. So that's why I think Google announcing it is a bigger thing than anyone has done so far. Um, so there's some obvious advantages of being able to do something like this, to be able, uh, one of those things is using very cheap hardware, like essentially hardware that, you know, existed 10 years ago, even, uh, to perform any sort of complex task to do 3d rendering, to do uh, video editing, to do any sort of development work, uh, to do any sort of machine learning work. Like, so you can do pretty much, uh, any sort of heavy to do task that you would associate with having to have a big, you know, gigantic tower in your home that pouts heat out like a crazy 
like a crazy machine uh, with something that could be similar to a MacBook Air, like a tiny little MacBook Air that really should only be used for word processing at this point. So then also uh, another little side advantage of that is being able to access the same environment from any device without having to use any sort of backups or syncing or anything. Like you're pretty much connecting to a remote computer uh, in the cloud or in a data center and you don't have to worry about, you know, resetting up your laptop. Like right now I have a MacBook and a Windows PC and I have to kind of have to somehow work out how the two sync together. Um, I wouldn't have to do that. I would just connect to from both my desktop experience and my mobile experience. I would connect to the exact same computer on a network and uh, essentially just carry on as I was coding wherever I was coding before or carry on whatever I was doing before. And some not so obvious advantages actually can come to developers because if a large thin client powerhouse like Google becomes really popular, a developer is now coding not for a single set of hardware because they're all going to be using the exact same video card. They're all going to be using the exact same you know, processor, the exact same operating system. Everything's going to be the exact same across board for all of these uh, you know, data center computers. Uh, and a developer will, won't have to worry about the fact that there's, you know, a million different pieces of hardware out there that they have to adapt for. And an operating system that's created won't have to worry about supporting every single type of processor and every single type of graphics card that's ever created. They can focus on supporting very few and optimize them. Like Mac OS, a, a big feature of Mac OS is the fact that their operating system is very can run very to the metal of the of the hardware and therefore is much better performance than let's say Windows because Windows has to be hardware agnostic and run on almost anything out there. So they have to have some sort of overhead to be able to adapt between the different hardwares. Mac OS knows exactly what kind of hardware they, they have and is able to optimize for that hardware. Well, with a thin client kind of scenario, you have the exact same thing for everyone out there, not just Mac, but you have any sort of person being able to access the exact same hardware. And for a developer, you can develop strictly for that hardware. So you, you don't have to worry about an IE5 or whatever. Uh, you don't have to worry about uh, an older computer that can't handle the processing, this machine learning algorithm. No, you can just run it because you know that if this computer can run it, everyone can run it. Uh, and it applies to gaming as well. So like if you're code, if you're a game developer, you have to develop for multiple, multiple different uh, graphics cards, multiple different consoles, different systems, all, all these different techniques that you have to use to be able to do that. Well, now you're programming for one console, like one specific set of hardware, and you can really optimize that hardware as well as you want because you're programming pretty much right to the metal at that point. Um, so that's a small little advantage for uh, for developers out there and gaming developers out there that may be not as obvious as, you know, just being able to have a cheap computer. Um, there's also obviously some limitations out there uh, and there can be pretty big, especially right now. Uh, network connection is obviously the number one thing that you need with something like this and it needs to be a good network connection. Not only do you need good upload and download speed, but you need a really close to the node experience, which means the latency. So essentially what you want is when you're moving your mouse on the, on the screen, the mouse moves at the exact same time on the think on the actual data center large powerful computer uh, because you don't want to have like your, you move your mouse and it moves a second later that's going to make for a very unacceptable experience uh, you're not going to want that now we have kind of reached that point now where you can't really see the latency of a mouse gaming is a different scenario because it's so um it's so critical to be able to you know press the x button and have it happen instantaneously especially if you're talking about competitive gaming now a big thing with Google's new uh, Stadia streaming is that there's also there's already been tests done 
where it's apparently reaching levels of a console. So it's almost it's at the same level as an Xbox One right now with its latency, which is like we don't know how they're doing it because in in full like just in physics explanation, like light still has to travel from your computer to the node. And that takes time. That's like, you know, hundreds of milliseconds. But from what the testers are seeing, there is a system in place that somehow syncs that up where you can fully like you can almost not notice the latency. So it's a big positive. And I think this is what kind of sprouted my thought process in the future of thinking computing, because we can if we can overcome this latency problem and overcome this network issue, I see this kind of taking over in the future and becoming the, you know, de facto way of computing. Uh, You're just going to have a tiny little tablet or a tiny little really thin notebook without any sort of processing power that's only able to do one thing and that's connect to this this node uh, through the network and you'll be able to be off the races on any sort of task that you need. So so with that knowledge and that networks are constantly improving, latency is also getting better, uh, can you see, and this is directed to you, Matt, and everyone else in the audience, to be honest, can you see a future where thin computing explodes? Uh, so it's actually kind of interesting that we were talking about this because uh, we've been talking about not specifically thin client computing or definitely not the technical part of it, but we've been talking about streaming games for quite a while on my other podcast, um, Shameless self Plug, Day One Patch podcast, available on YouTube and everywhere you listen to podcasts. But anyway, um, <laughs> but anyway uh, to answer your question, Mike, um, one of the things I think is one of the things I think is key is is how how this falls into I the culture I guess of using a computer and that will choose that will be this the, the the deciding force as to whether um, thin computing explodes and what I mean by that is so right now um, for those of you who don't play games Xbox Live which is Microsoft's uh, gaming service, which is generally only available on Xbox, is now you know generally more or less with, with with Windows 10 available on Windows 10 as well, and they're also now making it available on competitors' platforms, specifically the Nintendo Switch, and then they're also going to have a game streaming service, and there's a bunch of like rumblings about them having it work on uh, smartphones and that type of thing. You know, there's a bunch of stuff that's happening in this sort of space where you're streaming games and you're streaming you know, applications and that type of stuff. There's a lot of rumblings about that. And the reason why that is is because the current generation of consoles, so Xbox One, PS4, um, and maybe Switch, but Switch is kind of on its own. Um, but specifically PS4, Xbox One, they are getting older. And the, in the last generation of games, uh, so like the 360, let's say 360 PS3, was eight years long, eight years like uh, in length. Like that's how long the consoles were basically alive and the newest. And then they, then they were, you know, succeeded by the, the current generation consoles we have now. So we're not at the eight-year mark now, but the eight-year mark was particularly long that time. And so people are kind of discussing, like, hey, like, we're probably going to see new generation consoles this year because Microsoft has already mentioned they're working on it. They mentioned that last year. Um, I think Sony may have mentioned that as well. I can't remember now. Um, but, like, we know what's happening regardless of whatever the news is. And I think one of the issues that we have is that we have all these things that are happening, right? Like I just mentioned a whole bunch of stuff. We got, you know, Sony doing their thing. Microsoft's working with competitors to get, you know, Xbox Live to be more of a service. You know, it's all over the place. But I've mentioned to some of my friends who are less tech savvy, I mentioned been like, hey, you know, Xbox Live is coming to Switch. Xbox Live is coming to your phone. And they're just like, 
Why? Why? Who cares? And that's a really big, like, cultural hurdle, I'd say, to jump over. Because right now the cultural thing is, like, you know, you sit down at your TV and you have Netflix. Or if you want to play games, you know, you generally have a console. You know, obviously there's variations in setups. But, you know, you either use your TVs, your smart TV for Netflix, or you use your console for everything. But it's like a set-top box culture. And right now, you know, if you're trying to stream these games or whatever, I haven't looked at the Stadia or Stadia or whatever they want to call it. I haven't looked at that yet today. I know it I know it was announced today, but I haven't looked anything into it at all. One of the things I think is like a big thing is like I don't I I I struggle with people jumping over this hurdle for some reason. It's happened with it happened with um TV with Netflix, right? Netflix kind of taken over and now everything's being streamed. But that's more natural because a TV was always done by a service provider. A TV was always done by a third party. You know, it came in via a satellite, came in via a cable, came in via, you know, whatever means, an antenna. It was always a third party thing. And in general, all your computing happened inside of your home. And so you are trying to tell people like, no, 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 just use the internet for this. And that's really great. Like, it'd be super nice if Mike and I, after the show, could just hop on some game and we wouldn't have to download and install it, right? That'd be friggin' awesome. And, like, that sounds that sounds great. And that's, not, that, that's one of the things that are probably going to drive the culture forward. But we have to remember that people are attached to names like Xbox, PlayStation. You know, there's loyalists there. And, like, they're, they're still delivering good content on those consoles, uh, Nintendo Switch is still delivering good consoles and they're selling like crazy. And that's a mobile computing thing, right? Um, and that's another thing is that with something like the Nintendo Switch, if we like, if we say that, you know, if we just ignore the set top box idea for a moment, let's say your Nintendo Switch, like mine, is always in handheld mode. I don't plug it in, the dock's not even plugged in. So it's a, basically just a portable console for me. One of the things that I can see being an issue here is how are you supposed to get a constant internet connection while you're running around? Like, yeah, I have LTE and this type of thing, but it's, it's convenient when the infrastructure is there, but people need to understand and they don't, especially if they're not tech savvy and they don't really like need to write, but they should, in my opinion, understand that the internet is not an easy, easy technology. You know, there's lots of money in that data center, lots of money in the cabling, lots of money in the antennas, lots of money in the equipment, essentially, that is making that signal work. And a lot of people don't have good connection. Like even in a big city, it's extremely expensive, especially in Canada. We get hosed, hosed for network connectivity on, in this country. That's just a fact. We get hosed for it, whether it be cell phones or, you know, internet plans. Sure, internet plans are again becoming more reasonable. I don't really know what's going on in the cell phone space because I just don't care. Because um, I like my plan, so I just don't care. But, like, in general, we're getting hosed for it. And there's a problem there, right? It's, we will want to hold on to the fact that we can play our games without having a network connection that's streaming all of the data, right? Um, so... Yes, I can see it exploding. Do I see it exploding in gaming? Maybe with the next generation. And I don't mean next generation of consoles. I mean maybe with the next generation of kids. Or if they can convince us that it's 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 worthwhile or that it's really good. 
Um, I think a happy medium and something that I would actually purchase would be a hybrid. So you were mentioning that like Apple's close to the metal and so you don't need that really powerful computing power. Um, I would say that like the same goes for consoles, right? You know, a really good PC, a really good gaming PC right now is rather expensive, right? You know, over a grand, let's say for something that's pretty good, right? Let's say, let's say two grand for something that's really good. A console can play those same games at, you know, a half, you know, more than a half decent frame rate. They're playing at, you know, generally 30 FPS at maybe a little under 1080p or around 1080p, something like that, depending on what console you have. There's better consoles and worse consoles, right? A little bit of a range there. But just in general, you're getting a good experience for four or 500 bucks Canadian right now. Now, yes, these consoles are a little bit older, but they're under a grand is my point. And so I think a happy medium is having a, a diskless, so no disk uh, drive in the console, no no disk drive it's reliant on having the internet so you have to download stuff or stream it but that's exactly it i still i i still think that we need computing to happen in our own home when we want it and what i mean by that is let's say i want to play let's just take two big games today so let's take anthem and division two let's say i'm playing anthem right now i'm playing it away whatever and i'm i have it downloaded that little set-top box that I have, right, that that thing without the disk drive now, runs it locally. And I don't have, and the only thing I'm using the internet for is the actual fact that the game's online. I'm not streaming to that data center like like what we're talking about. But if Mike calls me up and says, "Hey, I want to play Division Two, you know, it's going to be kind of a pain in the ass. You got to like make sure you have enough space. You got to like download it. It's like this whole thing. Now we could say, "No, no, no. The heck with this. We're going to, I'm going to stream that game." So I can stream the Division 2 if my internet connection is good enough. But if I know that I'm going somewhere where the internet connection is not good enough, I could prepare and download the Division 2, for example. I think that the happy medium, if anything, needs to be there as a transition to full-time thin computing. Or it may just be the norm because the rural internet is going to take a long time, if it ever will, fully catch up to cities. And I don't think it ever will fully catch up to cities. And that's an issue in and of itself. So, yeah, um, a lot of good points. Definitely, definitely uh, some agree, some don't agree. But um, essentially, my my thing is, is that I'm also worried about the network connection. Uh, that's that's my like right now, I can't see it working, right? Like I can't see this whole system working fully because a the Internet drops out sometimes. So that's going to be a terrible experience. Uh, for either, again, we're gonna look look at it from both angles. One from like I'm a developer, I want to use a computer, uh, I want to use a thin computer for doing all my tasks, including compiling and all that. Uh, I don't, and I want to do it online through the the cloud, uh, through a data center. So the, from that experience, it would be really annoying to have a dropout and you not being able to do anything, uh, current in, in the current infrastructure. And B, from a gaming perspective, it would be even worse because you're in the middle of doing something and it would drop out and either there would be a lag spike or it would just crash or something. I don't know what would ex exactly what would happen in an internet drop. Um, so I think right now, with how the internet is, is structured, at least in Canada, it'd be tough to pull off something where I would switch completely to a thin computing environment. But I think in my hypothetical scenario of the internet, let's say some sort of a version of 5g takes off across board so 5g allows 
pretty much wired connection internet wirelessly. So that solves that one issue that you were saying with uh, the switch and you know mobile computing and stuff like that. Let's let's just assume that everything has 5G. Uh, and if they if they somehow fix the infrastructure problems of stuff dropping internet connection every once in a while, like I I would say it's it would be acceptable I guess once a week if you had a stutter or something like that where it would just drop internet connection. But if it's like daily, multiple times a day, no, I'm I'm gonna use dedicated hardware. There's just no way I'm gonna deal with a daily drop in connection for my entire computing platform. Like let alone my like the, my internet drops and then I can't do some other work. I can at least do some local work. But uh, if if I'm running a cloud, a thin client, I can't do anything if the internet drops. It's literally zero, uh, which is a problem. So let's say they address both those issues in the future. Uh, this could be five years down the line. This could be 10 years down the line, something like that. If they address those both those issues, I don't see any reason to own a hardware computer. Like absolutely zero. Like I would... I would have my screens connected to like a tiny little thin client that would probably tape to under my desk. Um, and that's it for my desktop computer. And then I would have a tiny little like my, like really thin laptop with, with a battery in it that's pretty much just a screen and keyboard and mouse. And that's it. Those would be my devices. And if they connect perfectly and seamlessly to these thin client, to these uh, data centers, I would just be often, often away playing games wherever I want. Like I know, I don't think you you haven't seen the uh, Stadia demonstration, right? No, I, I've only heard the name. Someone mentioned it in the chat. I'm in. That's it. Okay, so it's it's pretty like it's pretty crazy. Like if if you if you take a look at the demonstration, uh, it's it has some crazy advantages. For instance, uh, being able to pick up from any sort of device. So they showed this live uh, with actually it working. Uh, they went from a port, like a, a tiny little, I think it was a pixel book, Chromebook. So they went from a Chromebook. They were playing Assassin's Creed, uh, Odyssey. Then they dropped the controller for the Chromebook. They went to a, a, a desktop computer. They just clicked on play and it automatically took over on that desktop computer. And they were playing from the exact same spot they were on the Chromebook right away. So they were just playing, it was maybe like one or two seconds. Then they went to a phone. So they were playing from the exact same spot on a phone with a controller. Then they went to a uh, tablet. And then at, finally they went to a Chromecast on a big TV. And they did this all seamlessly. Like just that advantage of just being able to pick up exactly where you left off. So that was crazy. The other thing that they mentioned, like other little small developer uh, stuff that they mentioned was let's say split screen, right? So right now there's a limitation for split screen as consoles, as games have gotten more complicated, you have to render two different scenes when you're playing a split screen, right? Well, the Acadia or Stadia, sorry, the Stadia, uh, does uses two separate nodes for each split in the screen. So it's rendering like on two different graphics cards, each split. So it's running at full performance on both sides of the screen when you're doing split screen which is also a pretty big advantage. Uh, like just like they act, what Google did is they showed the potential of a thin computing world, in my opinion. Like that's, that's the big thing that they did. I don't know how, I don't know how realized it will be when it comes out. Uh, they also said, okay, the, the other thing is the performance that they said. So uh, 4K 60 Hertz is what it will be launched at. 
So you, you can go up to 4K at 60 hertz with the intention of doing 8K at 120 FPS in in the near future. So that to me is also crazy. So like the 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 quality of the image will be good. The even like the higher FPS count, so it'll start at 60, it'll go up to 120 eventually. Uh, that's that's a big thing for PC gamers. Like when I was looking at it on my PC, I'm like, well, it's not going to go up to 120, so I'm not really that interested. As soon as they said that, yeah, it will be like high high refresh rate gaming. That's a big big uh, thumbs up for me, obviously, because like that's what I want. I have a 144 hertz screen. I want to use it. Um, and the fact that like anyone can pick up any device not matter how how powerful it is and just start playing any sort of AAA game. Like I said, Assassin's Creed Odyssey was what they mentioned. I know Doom is going to be a launch title for it. Uh, like the new Doom that, that came out is going to be a launch title. So that that's going to be pretty awesome. And I, I, don't, I don't know what else, to be honest. Again, I'm not like, I'm not fully saying that like, Stadia will take off and be the next best thing. I'm just saying what they showed, showed me the future of Think Computing. So if it can be what they're saying... I can see it, you know, with the network problem solved, taking over computing as we see it. Now, having said that, there is some caveats that I want to say. A lot of people are still traditional gamers. Uh, I don't want to say a lot of people. There will be a certain section of people that want the physical copies, that want the physical consoles. And I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. Uh, I don't think that's going to go away overnight or whatever. Like, I think that... Um, what's most likely going to happen is kind of what you're saying with that hybrid system. So maybe the next console that P the PlayStation and Microsoft come out with will have streaming capabilities built into it. And with the intention that, you know, five years down the line, when they work out the infrastructure problems, they won't have to update that console anymore. They can just sell you a subscription service where you'll just subscribe to even more stuff. So I'm already a subscribed to PS plus you're subscribed to PS plus and all the other Microsoft stuff, like you'll just subscribe to something even more, like something more expensive that will pretty much replace you buying a console every five or six years. And what they'll do is they'll just start streaming the newer, the newer AAA games to that, to that service. So if they can't, you know, max out that, that they can't run a game that maxes out that uh, console's hardware, instead of, you know, kiboshing that game and lowering the settings, they'll stream it at a much higher resolution and a much higher quality. And people will use that streaming service and eventually that thing will just become a thin client because it will be so outdated at that time that it will just be running a remote connection pretty much. So that might be their plan. I could see that being a very valid plan for them uh, without ha like I would just like if I was them, I would literally do that. Take all the money that they have set aside for developing the next console and develop infrastructure for their streaming service instead of it and use that as their next console upgrade. Just have a streaming service on their current console. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways that this could go. Um, and I'm not saying that this is going to be the next... Well, I think it's going to be pretty big, but I, I'm not saying that especially like Stadia will be the best thing ever. I'm not endorsing it in any way because I, I've, I've done very little research into it. Uh, but from what I've heard, it's pretty promising and could be the future. So it's, it's definitely interesting to talk about at least. Well, another thing actually to, to, to mention is like we can actually stream games already. Uh, PlayStation has a service um on the ps4 already and has for a number of years now uh playstation i keep thinking playstation now i always i always want to think it's view but that's their other one now um mm -hmm. but yeah so playstation now and i've tried that uh, like a free trial and i tried mm -hmm. that now i did have some hiccups and a couple of warnings on the screen saying the internet's too slow um at the time i was on a cable connection at 60 down now i'm on fiber with 250 250 
So, like, it'd probably be better unless that was the data center. Like, that's really the question. Like, honestly, because 60, like, for everything else was fine at the end of the yeah, day. Yeah, it's not... And it's not really about the speed again. It's about, I think it's more about the latency of the whole thing. I didn't have actually. too much trouble with that, actually. Really? Um, so like you, you didn't notice, you know, moving was delayed? There was, now the one thing I was, now I think one thing to, to be clear here is I was playing older games. Um, at the time mm-hmm. I was playing like, I think it was PS3 games um, and I was on a PS4. Um, so maybe there's a little bit of that. I did notice occasionally there was input delay, but it was absolutely something that I could adjust to. It wasn't totally ridiculous. I'm not an esports player, so maybe it's, you know, maybe to them it'd be absolutely outrageous, but I was playing single player games and I wasn't really having an issue. Certainly wasn't a second. It certainly wasn't one second at all. It was much lower than that, I'd say. Um, And I noticed uh, texture pop in. Now, I know that's a problem, but that's a way to save bandwidth if you notice your connection kind of like speed kind of dipping here and there. Um, for sure. That's one way to kind of save that. Um, another thing too is like, I, I think you're, you're mentioning internet connection. Like my internet's really good now. Like uh, my town just got a really good company comes, it came in and they put fiber for the first time ever. And people are switching to it left, right, and center. Um, I have noticed one day where it slowed down to 100 and something and they upgraded us. Uh, we, we were, they upgraded us from 100 to 250 because they changed their plans up. So like, I mean, I, I'm having like a really good experience right now. It is a new company. Um, and I'm in like a, not a rural town, but like it is like a town. Like it's essentially a one road town that's growing, let's say. Um, and that's essentially, that is what's happening. And so the fact that I am not in a city and getting fiber internet is really unheard of. And my nodes are literally across the street. I can see my nodes right there. So I would have particularly good experience if I were like, maybe I should try PlayStation, uh, sorry, PlayStation now again, maybe I should give that a go again and see how that runs now. Cause they did actually add downloading functionality and for some games and PS4 games, I believe now since I tried it. Cause I tried it a few years ago now. So yeah, so it like, it's the, the issue, the issue here I think is the fact that, there's like the reliance on infrastructure and that's unclear i think to people i think people think like oh i pay my internet fee i'm gonna plug in my my thing and like i'm gonna plug into my router and it'll be fine well first of all a lot of the routers that come with come with isps are underpowered and so you're getting you know really bad traffic management so especially if you have two or three kids in the house that are trying to stream it or you you and somebody else or just a few people trying to stream it now you're streaming netflix you're streaming games like you're gonna need a better router right you need better speeds or at least a better router to handle if you have really good speeds you need a better router so now that's another investment like my router was 350 dollars or something like that um i have a one hell of a router but i also beat the hell out of my network so i need that right and another thing too is so, so there's that whole component. People are not going to understand that. People might have old cabling. They're going to need to upgrade their cabling. People might have old switches in their house. They need to get rid of those. They they may have old wireless extenders. They need to get rid of those because those are shit probably. So they need to probably get better wireless extenders. Like this is this is like upgrading to like a 4K HDR TV. <laughs> like seriously, like you need an HDMI 2.0 cable, an HDR compatible thing, an HDR like an HDR compatible TV, an HDR compatible 4K disc an HDR compatible 4K Blu-ray player, like, this is serious business now. Like, this is, like, a big thing, right? And some people might just plug in and it'll work. Like, here, you'd probably plug it in and it'd work. But I also bolstered my network. I got a server, like, right beside me right now. Um, 
So, like, I'm, like, we're techies. We understand what's going on. Your internet could probably handle it. I don't know how your uptime is, but you're in a city. So, like, you're probably, you might be better than, I mean, I don't, I don't think your speed's better than mine anymore. Um, but, like, your, your, like, I think your uptime might be, although I haven't really noticed any downtime. Um, but generally just, you know, obviously city is usually better than rural, but I'm having a great experience out here. Um, so, like, would you say that your internet is good enough to handle it, or would you say that it's faltering? Like, I don't know, you have an older plan, too? Like, how's that situation? Yeah, I have I have bad upload. I have really good download, but bad upload. Um, and my, my uptime's fine. Like, again, I have hiccups here and there, for sure. Uh, but it's fine. Like, I, I the, thing, the thing that I want to point, like, pound home here is I don't... The current infrastructure, I don't think, will have the, the most enjoyable experience. I'm talking very theoretical in the sense that at some point the infrastructure will update to the point where it will have a good experience. That's why I mentioned the 5G thing is like it's so far in the future for us like it is going to happen but it's so far in the future for us that we can kind of theorize that this is when it might be the the right time to do this kind of thing. That, that that's more where I'm going. I'm 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 of the same mindset as you with the fact that like this the 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 need to upgrade so many different components of your infrastructure for this to work if that's the case like i don't know if maybe stadia has solutions for all these problems that we've mentioned because uh, no one's tried it that i know of on different connections so i don't know if they have solutions for all this but if they don't the need to upgrade every single component like your router your internet connection itself your wi-fi access points your extenders all that stuff will be a huge hindrance to this uh, the progression of this if that is actually required for something like stadia but again in a fully theoretical world i'll, I'll kind of leave it at this i think it could be a very very big portion of our computing i i definitely agree with that um i definitely think that it's useful uh i already subscribe to a million and one services xbox live psn xbox game pass EA access like I'm a big gamer play a lot of games so like that's my hobby so I, I pay a lot of money into it um and so I I am fully indoctrinated in that I also am a big Microsoft fanboy so I'd pr probably go to an Xbox service whatever their game service stream streaming solution is going to be over you know Google's um but I'm I'm a really big fan of this especially when it's mobile like it, like you said with it's 5G I think that's killer I think that's a killer idea you know it'd be awesome to just be like oh I'm going out somewhere you know, I don't need to, maybe I can just use my phone or maybe I'm going to, you know, maybe bring like a little thing like a switch. Like if I want a little bit more dedication, better speakers or, you know, whatever they come up with, you know, something a little bit better. You know, I'm down with that. Absolutely. Um, I have one, one big caveat and it, it might be an age thing or something and it's maybe dystopian even by doing this without a question, you are relinquishing control. And that is fucking scary, and I don't think people know that. Like, people who are not techies do not understand that you are relinquishing control to them. Yep. Um, and by them, I mean your ISP and your, your game service provider at this point. Already, we've kind of relinquished control on PC to, like, you know, the availability of games on Steam. And we're already seeing on the, in the digital game market, because people are like, well, they can't sell out, you know. That's true in most cases. Some places will run out because they bought keys and they just sell the keys. But generally speaking, you're buying from Steam. They're not going to sell out. But licenses run out and games get pulled. So if you didn't buy it from a by a certain date, they pull that game. Alan Wake is an example. Can't buy Alan Wake anymore. Got to buy the disc. And what's really great about that 
for the game developer not again this is this is my dystopian view right kind of like a whatever but this could happen they could let the license expire pull the game and then sell you an hd version later let's yep. let's renew it and let's sell you an hd version now they already sell us an hd version but you have the option of not doing that in addition with the death of net neutrality, which I think is coming back in some way I heard or something. I don't really follow American news too much. Do not quote me on that. Let's just assume it's not coming back. Okay. Let's be, let's be pessimistic. Net neutrality doesn't exist. Me as an ISP would not let this shit run on my service unless you pay me more. And that, that, that sounds really like bad of me or like dystopian. But this is, this is a lot of data coming in now. Like you gotta remember here, this is Netflix other streaming services like YouTube, people are using this for work. They're working from home. Like, do you know how how much more important an internet connection is becoming? Why wouldn't I raise the price? I'm not being evil. That's just capitalism. Like that's that just makes sense, right? You know, yep. and and that that's one that's one big caveat is especially in the world without net neutrality. What if uh, what if Mike's on Stadia? I'm on Xbox's service. And uh, net neutrality, which we do have in Canada, right? But let's just let's again let's assume it's gone, okay? What's what? What if there's a problem where it says like, well, you guys can crossplay? Let's assume that's all in place now. You guys can crossplay. Mike on his Stadia, Matt on his Xbox streaming thing, but Mike doesn't have a package that allows Xbox packets. Interesting. Mm -hmm. What if that happens, right? And you're relinquishing everything to. You just have an interface, like essentially your house becomes an interface to be plugged in and you're not, you don't have anything computing there. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that, that's a serious problem. Yeah. That's a valid concern. And it's a, it's a good point to bring up that like that with privacy and all, all the stuff that we're, that that's being talked about right now with Facebook and the news and all that. Like, it's just that this is one more thing that we'll relinquish uh, control of to everyone other than ourselves so it's it, it, it is a concern i don't think that's going to be a stopper for it um i think people the general public won't care uh especially with gaming consoles they'll be like well whatever that's one less thing i have to buy every year and that's it like i, I think that's how they're going to treat it but i think slowly it will take over everything else and it might be a problem like it, it fully i fully agree with your dystopian outlook on it that it could for sure be a problem depending on where we're heading but um it's so it, it's a good thing to bring up. I think I think that was that was a good a good point for you to bring up. So for other for people to think about. Because the thing is, is every like a lot of people, not everybody, but like a lot of people think big corporations are evil. I'm not commenting whether they are or they aren't, right? They're trying to make money just like everybody else. But if you if they become a very integral part of your infrastructure, whether that be your hobby, which is gaming, or you're just straight up your internet service provider, which is providing your video entertainment, your gaming entertainment, your work you know, you remote you work from home, let's say, and everything else that you do online, research the whole bit, because they became so vital, why wouldn't they try to raise the prices? Anything they do to try to, anything that they do affects you potentially, right? If you use the full spectrum of apps or whatever on their service, anything, any policy change they do could affect you. It's up to them at that point because it's their network and you're essentially renting a little spot of it, right? Regulation and stuff comes in, fine. Um, you know, I don't want to comment on that, but that's a serious problem. Another thing, actually, just a real, it's related to this and I'll kind of, that's probably be my final dystopian point. I had a real bad experience with my internet service provider. Um, not the one I have now, 
but another one in the past, I'm not naming names or anything, but I had a real bad friggin' support thing. I was down for like a week, something like that. It was, it was, I can't remember if it was a full week, but it was certainly more than, it was certainly close to a week. And it was just like this BS of like, you know, like they, they call me late. Then I send this, this, send the stuff in, or like they call me unannounced and they want like some logs. So I send them logs back. And then it's like this whole thing. It was a whole disaster. And it was like days upon days of like, in my opinion, not the greatest support. Then their phone, then their phone system went down. So I couldn't call them. Like I could, I was thinking like, oh, I'm just going to take control of this and just call and let's get this ticket going. Their phone system went down. So I couldn't really call them effectively. That went down. Then like my internet was down for so long and they didn't fix it. Somebody else fixed it. Like something happened and, and they were like, then they called me and they were like, oh, can you send logs? I'm like, why is it, it's working? They're like, oh, okay. It's like, what? Now think about, and, and that was, you know, a few days, whatever, but think about this right now. Even just uh, to bring it back to web development, you know, oh, I need a new plugin. Oh, can't download it. Better have all my stuff local, and better and hope to hope to God that my PC, which is my local computing device, can compute all this. Imagine being cut off completely. Oh, Matt's internet's down for six days. He literally can't watch anything, call anybody, talk to anybody in any capacity. Can't chat. Like that. That that's out the window. Can't work. Can't can't watch TV. Can't like can't. All right. That's it. I have to go to an internet cafe, maybe, if they have friggin' or not internet cafe, that's that's like nineties, but like a cafe with internet, a cafe with Wi Fi. God I'm old. A cafe with Wi Fi, right? But ho- hopefully that Wi Fi is okay. And then I can only be there for so long. Like it's too much reliance. Like even during that week of me having issues, like I was going crazy. My phone was on like data saver. I couldn't download anything. I couldn't really do anything. Apps that I thought were run, like would lo- would run local would just completely fail and be like, oh no, we need to connect the internet. There's no internet connection. Can't do this. Like it was a disaster. We're already becoming reliant on the internet. We're not all the way though. I'm I'm scared. I'm scared of it. Straight up. But yep. So if you so, so if people have bad support for their internet connection, poor support or slow support, and something goes down. Like now you're relying on Google and your ISP and hopefully your hardware, your host still keeps working. Like this is, you gotta, you know what I mean? Like, like we're putting a lot of, a lot of chips into this one big infrastructure machine and it's, Mm -hmm. you gotta friggin' be careful with that type of stuff. But again, a little bit of dystopian old man view, but I think it's a legitimate concern. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know whether you have any more comments on the support part, Mike, but I can run the old conclusion. Runner up. Alrighty, well, thank you for listening, and make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on the platform of your choice. You can follow us on the socials via Facebook and Instagram, which is at HTML All the Things. We are also on Twitter, which is at HTML Everything. We're on Medium, we're on GitHub, and we're also on Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash HTML All the Things. Check out those tiers and give that a go. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you are listening to this on, and we are signing off. We'll